Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy for Credit Sites. And today I am joined by Pramod Chinoy. He is our co-head of research for the Asia Pacific team, and he helps to focus the financials team in our Singapore office. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you uh, up late on your end chatting about our conferences that we just hosted in Asia. Thanks, Winnie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I am really excited to talk about this because it's always nice to get a little bit of a lens into what's going on in the other side of the world. And today we're going to be talking about the Asia conference. You guys hosted a conference in both Hong Kong and Singapore. Can you just give us a bit of a lay of the land? You know, what was the purpose of the conference? Who was there? who credit sites attended, all of those fun detail. Great. Uh, no, thanks Thanks for the question. So we have an annual conference at uh, credit sites in, in Asia. We typically have it, call it the end of June, early July, because it's a nice marker. You, you reflect on how the first half of the year is gone. You look at the second half of the year and say, look, this is what we are thinking. Have a little forward-looking view into 2024. And as you pointed out, we have these conferences in both Hong Kong and Singapore. We are based in Singapore. Now, we obviously took a break for COVID. We went uh, online for that and we were able to get back in person last year in Singapore. But this was uh, the first time that we were back in Hong Kong in person. So that was uh, that was great. We had stellar client feedback for the conference. So that's, uh, that's lovely. We had about 100 participants in Hong Kong and about 175 in Singapore. And who are these people? It was the entire spectrum, Winnie. So you had your insurers, your asset managers, your security houses, private banks, wealth, uh, family offices, commercial and investment banks, which include traders, credit research analysts, mid-office risk. So pretty much all the different spectrum uh, of credit investors that that we target. Uh, from, the, from the group perspective, the main analysts were those uh, part of the Asia team that were presenting. So I was talking about financials. There's Sandra Chow, who's the co-head of research, and she was uh, presenting on Asia strategy. We had Zerlina Zeng, who is our key China analyst who does China corporates, macros, LGFV. So she was presenting on that factor. We had Jonathan Tan, who uh, stepped in for Lakshar, senior South and Southeast Asia analyst. He had to step away. So these were the key folks who were on the ground in addition to Luther Chai, who is our, our senior analyst, who's, who's picked up coverage of Hong Kong property uh, and plans to initiate on some local names in Macau Gaming. We also had Regis Chatelier, who joined us from London. He's our new 
EM strategist. It was fantastic to have him in the region. We used uh, the opportunity of his being in the region, not only for the conference, but also to meet a number of investors. Um, so uh, great event, uh, great events rather, since we had two of them. And, uh, and, and that's the lay of the land. That's super helpful. So I also wanted to give a little bit of a plug or shout out to Regis, you flying from London to be in person for those conferences, kind of the first big travel that we've tasked him with since joining the Credit Sites team in March. And he also recently launched his EM Weekly, which I think people are really excited about. And it was probably very helpful for him to have a pretty hefty roster of client meetings to kind of fine tune some of his thoughts ahead of launching that weekly. So if you could have added one panel or presentation to the lineup, what would it have been? So we were quite punchy with our panels and presentations. You know, each one of them was about half an hour because we didn't want this overall session to go on for too long. Uh, we, we had basically started at nine in the morning, got over by 2.30, 2.45 in the afternoon. Uh, our last session was uh, Winnie on global picks and pans. So we had walked through Asia picks and pans through various sessions over the course of the day. And we ended with uh, the global picks and pans. Uh, that was a short session. If we did have the luxury of more time, then I would have liked to flesh out some of those names and credits in greater detail. Yeah, it's always fun to have those picks and pans. And it's tricky when you plan a conference. You don't want to have panels that are so long that you lose interest from the audience. But 30 minutes is oftentimes not quite enough to feel like you've really covered something in full depth. So it's always a tricky balance figuring out how to structure conferences and good information for planning for next year, which hopefully someday I'll get to attend one of these in person. I still haven't come to the Singapore office, which kind of makes me sad because you guys have a great team. So let's talk a little bit about the macro side of things. Like I said earlier, it's always really helpful to talk to you guys in the Singapore office, especially after you've seen, you know, 200 plus clients in a relative short time frame. Where does client sentiment currently stand? Are people constructive? Are people cautious? What's the general view? Uh, in, in general, there's, there's a caution, Winnie. We've had, uh, just like the U.S. markets, we've seen a tightening uh, in both the investment grade and high yield markets uh, over here, high yield a little very volatile as a result of uh, China property. But investors, I think, are finally balanced whether markets are going to go tighter or wider from here. And and so there isn't very much of conviction regarding how they're thinking about things. We have had relatively little supply in Asia as well. And once you've got low supply, there's automatically a lot of illiquidity uh, clients don't want to trade out of positions because they can never get those bonds back. So all in all, there's uh, there's there's a mix of different things, but I'd say that the overall tone is certainly cautious. Yeah, that makes sense. That combination of a lot of different macro, macro factors plus illiquidity just never feels good for fund managers. So how are clients conveying that sentiment in the market? You said that, you know, if People are a little bit afraid to sell because they might not get something back. It seems like, you know, maybe there's not a lot of, of pressure from that side of things, but I'm sure there's a lot of nuance to the broader story. So we've had a fair amount of supply coming in from Korea. The Korean market's been active. Uh, participation is, is high over there. 
investors are more cautious about China and therefore have been focusing a little bit closer on South and uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, they are looking at non-Asian alternatives in case their mandate permits. So, for example, there has been greater interest in Australia and Japan. For some indices, for example, the JP Morgan Index is an Asia X Japan and X Australia Index. But there's a component of the index that's going to go live from uh, the end of this year, which is going to include Australia and Japan. That's picked up a certain amount of interest. There's also interest in the Middle East in EM sovereigns. And so it was great to have Regis here, as we earlier talked about, and also in the U.S. So the U.S. market is certainly a market which Asian investors, in case their mandate permits, then uh, they're, they're definitely looking at the U.S. as well. So that's interesting that you say that Asian investors are looking at the U.S. We do a lot of work on the strategy team around FX and how the strength of the dollar over the past two years at this point has really weighed on non-U.S. demand for U.S. credit because when you have to swap things back to your home currency and hedge your uh, dollar exposure, then you're just kind of giving up a lot of yield. But it, it seems like there still is interest in buying U.S. credit from Asian investors. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You're, you're right, Winnie, and I think that there are certain segments of the market where this is more prevalent. For example, in the insurance space where insurers are funding short-term rolling that over and as funding costs have spiked or hedging costs have spiked, then their choices are either to take the pain on that or to sell the bonds. Uh, and we've seen a combination of that that investors have taken, you know, one out of these two routes down. But you also have another set of investors whose mandates are more flexible, who have for choice been more Asia focused. Some of these are Chinese investors who've largely focused on on Chinese names. Now, when you've got the dearth of supply that you have from China and you've got funds to put to use, you also have a large differential between where the US rates are and the Chinese rates are. Then there's a good push to make those overseas investments. Uh, and the U.S. market, starting with the U.S. financials, are where they're they're putting their money. And then it goes into other U.S. corporates where name recognition is strong. We have seen some follow-up impact of that in interest in Australian and Japanese financials as well uh, from this investor base. So we do anticipate that this area of interest will grow. And, uh, and so that's a segment of the market that you didn't really see active in U.S. bonds that's going to be stepping up activity in U.S. bonds going forward. I'm sure that many of our U.S. listeners will be happy to hear that there's going to be some stepped up interest in the U.S. markets, uh, especially as spreads have tightened up quite considerably and everyone's kind of wondering what the next thing is to help support the market. So you've mentioned the primary market a couple of times, lots of moving pieces there in terms of, you know, not a lot of supply in some markets. Can you just walk us through kind of the the general sense of the primary market? Where are deals getting done? Uh, where are deals not getting done? What's been kind of investor receptivity to deals? So I'd say that investor receptivity for deals has been great. And investors are keen to to put money to work. There are a lot of bonds redeeming. So there's money that's there, that's that's investable. So the cash is available to be put to work. Uh, the issue is more from an issuer's side. So issuers have choices in terms of where they want to raise funding from. Is it dollar bonds? Is it dollar loans? Is it local currency bonds? Is it local currency loans? 
dollar bonds, sadly, are the most expensive uh, out of all of these choices. And for choice, therefore, they're looking at the other alternatives and refinancing their uh, dollar bonds through other means. So we've seen some issuers step away from the market once their bonds have matured. They're, they're no longer present in the dollar market. There are other issuers who are taking a more long-term view and would like to have at least some bonds outstanding. These are issuers who kind of issue in the three to five-year maturity and their, their bonds have come up uh, recently. So that's the that's a little bit of the lay of the land. And we are probably, Winnie, going to see this for about another year plus. And why is a year plus is that if we estimate that U.S. rates are going to remain high for a long period of time and then start coming down, it's when they come down, it's when, you know, the issuance makes sense for these issuers that you're likely to see them coming back into the market. So that's that's how we see things right now. And from a pure uh, stat perspective, the, the, the volumes are down quite significantly. This year is down a third year to date. We've had about 84 billion of supply year to date. And if we were to look back on last year, uh, 2022 was down almost 46% over 2021. So we are talking about down last year and down year to date on last year. So you can see where this 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 market is headed and therefore the illiquidity and investor caution and therefore increased appetite for other jurisdictions uh, that we were talking about a short while back. That's super helpful. It's really interesting how we continue to see issuers kind of sit on their hands or pursue alternatives if there are other options available to them, given just how much more expensive U.S. dollar funding costs have, have ultimately gotten. So let's talk a little bit about the stressed or the more storied issuers. We've seen a pretty material pickup in both high-yield bond and leveraged loan issuance in the U.S. markets over the past month or so. Are we seeing a similar type of, you know, mini surge in the Asian markets or is that just a relatively shut market right now? So we haven't seen too much of issuance coming out of the um, high yield space, but that having been said, never say never, we had uh, a surprise transaction from Resorts World that they were issuing for the Vegas entity, but um, effectively the credit is Malaysian with the Malaysian support. It is interesting with, with these kind of levels, you, you may still have issuers coming out of the market, but definitely volumes are down quite significantly. So I think it's it's less uh, less an investor point, more an issuance point. That having been said, unlike earlier, investors don't really need to stretch for yield anymore. They're getting that yield from the comfortable investment grade names. So you do have the, the high yield mandated investors who are happy to look at new names. The, the regular investor set doesn't necessarily need to stretch there. They, they get the return that they want elsewhere. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense, just given where we are in the cycle. And, and we see similar trends in the U.S. where we've seen a little pop in high yield issuance, but you know it hasn't been super overweighted to triple C's and all the triple C deals that have come this year are secured deals. So there's definitely that kind of bias towards a, a little bit higher quality, even down in the ratings spectrum. So let's shift the conversation a little bit to kind of client takeaways or your takeaways from the conference. Were there any particularly interesting questions from the audience during some of these sector panels and presentations that struck you as you know, kind of memorable? 
Um, not not a huge surprise, but a lot of the questions and the interesting questions came around China macro, uh, around China LGFVs, a little bit of the property sector. Um, there were questions around Japanification. Is is China headed down that particular route? More questions around China in Hong Kong than in Singapore. Singapore was a little bit more broad based in terms of the number of sectors and credits that uh, that investors were interested in. But also even the China questions widened to uh, risks around SOEs and sanctions and defaults. So the range of questions was, was, was also larger in Singapore. What is interesting was what I pointed out uh, earlier to you, Winnie, is that when we did polls in terms of like, where's the market going from here? Is it tighter or wider? In both places, it was a, it was a very close call. In, uh, in in Hong Kong, uh, a slight majority felt it's going to be tighter. In Singapore, a slight majority felt it's going to go wider. So for choice, investors are uh, very balanced in terms of their outlook on, on, on where we're going to end 2023. I find that very surprising. We do those types of polls a lot in our client meetings and conferences in the U.S., and it's never so evenly split. The you know almost 50-50 is harder versus wider. It's almost always... 90% have one view or or the other. So that's really interesting to me that you have a much more kind of balanced view and, and you know, maybe reflects a lot of the intersection between the technicals being kind of okay with cash on the sidelines and new issue, not particularly robust, whereas fundamentals are a little bit more of a question mark, especially with all the conversation around what exactly is happening with China and, you know, what's the next five to 10 years they're going to look like. So what sectors are clients loving or hating right now? What are people really interested in? What are they just ignoring? So there's there's comfort with financials. The financial sector over here, by and large, across different jurisdictions, is a, is a safe sector that's actually reflected in bank spreads. We find bank senior spreads pretty tight at, at this point of time. They are getting warmer towards SOEs, and these are Chinese SOEs and China tech, so that is good to see some investors coming back into that particular space. There is more interest in Macau Gaming for those who have more of a high-yield ability, as well as some of the names are also investment-grade, so that, that offers some choice for pretty much everybody. Everyone is, of course, super cautious around China property. You do have some investors, but these are mostly family offices and others that are looking to step in for a bit of a punt with uh, some of these bond prices trading in the single digits and low double digits. But for choice, there are a bunch of names which are in the private sector, which have still uh, not defaulted. And what we are seeing with these names is that with news flow, there's a lot of volatility in the prices. So in case your investor is holding on to those bonds, it's it's not a happy time. And although, you know, your name might look, your credit might look okay today, you have no idea where it's going tomorrow. So that that kind of volatility is is certainly not great for uh, for anyone. Yeah, that's such a major challenge. So what would shift the view on, on China property if this type of volatility in the market is really just kind of keeping a damper on any sort of positivity and optimism, even if the credit looks generally okay? How does this change? Like, what, what it, How does this all play out? 
So it's it's so the answer is at uh, two levels, Winnie. So the first is you know what's what's happening with a big macro picture, and secondly is that what's happening uh, with specific property credit. So when you come to the big macro picture, for a few months now, the government has been trying to talk up um, how things are going to be and saying you know we're we now love the tech sector, we are open to business. Uh, you you can see that the level of engagement with the rest of the world is is higher on a number of topics, including emerging market debt restructurings, for example. But getting back into China specifics, there was a Politburo meeting that that took place yesterday. As part of that Politburo meeting, there's there there are some snippets and some guidance that's given uh, regarding different sectors. So at, at the meeting yesterday, the Politburo acknowledged the challenges that the property sector was facing. But interestingly, they deleted a phrase which they had used many times, which is that housing is for living and not for speculation. So by deleting that, that gives us uh, you know, greater insight that the authorities who are trying to rein in house price increases, trying to rein in the growth and leverage in this particular sector are acknowledging that, look, and if sentiment doesn't come back, if public sentiment doesn't come back, then we are not going to see the sector revive. And if we are not going to see the sector revive, all the downstream industries that depend on it are also not going to revive. And that's very bad for growth. So we have seen this this removal. We are waiting to see you know, what policies follow next. We do expect some removal of uh, home purchase restrictions in top cities. We do hope that there is some additional bank policy, policy bank loans for the construction of pre-sold homes so that those can get out of the way. So there's small additional measures that we're looking at, but it's providing that comfort that this sector has an important role to play that the government isn't going to get in the way. And sure, if you want to buy as many houses as you like, that should be okay. And you know that the, the deposit burden goes away. So once that gets internalized by society, then you're probably going to see a little bit more of movement in terms of in in terms of this particular sector and that's then going to be beneficial for the individual credits now the the private sector credits that are that are surviving some of them are kind of surviving from bank rollover to bond restructure you know and bond exchanges and and moving forward without defaulting in in case that cash flow situation improves, then they should be in a better place. So it's a it's the macro that then goes into the micro with respect to these particular credits. So that's that's what we anticipate. It's probably going to take some time, but I think directionally the authorities acknowledge uh, that they didn't really get it right earlier and are not trying their best to modify that situation. That seems pretty material for the authorities to actually have a bit of a mea culpa moment and, you know, maybe not really explicitly say we got this wrong, but some uh, more implicit things in terms of policy and language changing. Like that seems like a really material thing from the Chinese government as a whole. That doesn't happen that often, does it? I think there there are lots of things that they're doing, which is which is moving in in that particular direction. And trying to see what the other measures, for example, that they're trying to take is earlier, they were, when it came to the Chinese LGFV sector, where there's been a lot of concern about how these LGFVs operate, there's a lot of debt that's been built up. Earlier, the focus was how much of debt is in the public domain, how much is hidden debt, 
and let's try to curb and control this hidden debt. Now the language has changed. They're talking about optimization of local government and LGFE debt, which to us is, you know, government speak for, watch out for more bond swaps to come and support measures to come so that things come out in the public domain and high cost LGFE debt is uh, is replaced by government sponsored and supported debt. So, so we do expect that sector some more activity to happen. Uh, we do expect more targeted industrial support measures. Uh, we do expect you know a little bit more of a support for you know the green transition. So all of these will add to broader sentiment, shall we say, over a certain period of time. Rome wasn't built in a day, so it's it's going to take a little bit of time for all of this to to come together. But directionally, the direction is the right one. Well, we like to see the direction being the right one. I want to follow up on one thing you mentioned around financials being viewed a little bit as a safe haven sector right now for a lot of investors. Do you think that that view on financials extends outside of Asia into Europe, you know, especially ET1s or into the U.S., maybe even regional banks, given that there was a lot of volatility and challenges associated with the sector earlier this year? Yes, the the events in, uh, in in the U.S. and Europe earlier this year certainly were front and center of attention for Asian investors who do have investments in these particular sectors. Investors are certainly differentiating between the regionals in the U.S. and the larger, more well-diversified names. We've had some prints from the regional banks more recently at attractive levels, and they've, they've priced uh, with pretty much no new issue concessions that would certainly have been picked up by Asian investors as well. So I think that that interest will will perhaps come through to Asian investors as well. Uh, when it comes to, to Europe, there always has been a good amount of interest in European bank capital, particularly from the private bank uh, and high net worth uh, segment of the market. Credit Suisse was a big knock, but that having been said, there are a bunch of investors who looked at the fallen prices post Credit Suisse as an opportunity to step in and buy some names. So uh, is there interest in that particular sector? Um, the answer is uh, is yes. And are they following the sector? The answer is yes. Interestingly, Asia hasn't had any of the kind of issues that we have seen so far in Europe and US. It may have its own type of issue. We haven't, we don't see signs of that as yet, but never say never. Never say never, for sure, as a a credit analyst, because as soon as you do, that's when your sector ends up blowing up, for sure. It is the person who is helping lead the financials pod. You definitely don't want that on your plate. So how do you think that the client views you are hearing at the conference align with our analysts when it comes to kind of the outlook for sectors? There was broad alignment. There was uh, agreement in terms of what we talked about, what is different is that we do see better pockets of opportunities around specific credits. So it is very much a question of then engaging with clients around why we like these particular credits and and what's the advantage uh, in these credits. So specifically, we like China Tech, the main names, Tencent, Alibaba, Meituan, Lenovo. We do like certain SOEs and even short-dated LGFV papers. Um, outside of China, there are specific corporates in South and Southeast Asia, like Greenco in the renewable space, ICTSI, that's a, a Philippines infrastructure provider, uh, and Pakwan Jati uh, in, in Indonesia. 
uh, in the financials, which I cover, we do see better value. I've already talked about bank spreads being very tight in senior debt, but there is value in bank tier two paper, in insurance paper, and better value in non-bank financial institutions as well. So there are specific names where uh, we think that there are, there is still some spread compression to come. And these are the names that we've highlighted to investors. Excellent. And I'm going to ask you to wrap up with kind of a question that you asked the audience at your conferences. Are you walking away from this with a more positive or negative outlook for Asia Credit or are spreads going wider or tighter through your end? So I have a, I have a positive view on Asia. I think there are lots of uh, opportunities. Uh, the performance ex-China property has been resilient. Credit quality, by and large, has been really good outside of that particular Chinese sector. We don't see that changing uh, going forward. So the underlying uh, credit metrics look good. There's money to put to use. So the technicals look good. So all in all, it's it's looking positive and I'm voting for the tighter from here. I love ending on a positive note. Tighter from here. You've heard it here. Robin from Chinoy, who is our co-head of our Asia-Pacific research and lead financials team in the Credit Safe Singapore office. Thank you so much for joining me today, Promote. This has been a pleasure. And likewise. Thanks, Winnie. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you have any follow-up questions for me or Promote, please feel free to reach out to us. If you're a Credit Safe subscriber, you can use that Ask an Analyst function on our website. If you're not a Credit Safe subscriber and you would like a trial, you can go to creditsites.com. And there is a little button there that you can click for a trial. Thank you so much. And we'll be back uh, again soon, hopefully, with some Asia sector strategy. That's what we're teeing up next. Have a great one, everyone. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.